All right, this is the second debate of the campaign. Of course, the TV debate was Tuesday night. And I'll tell you what, BC Green Party leader Sonia Firstino did really well. I thought she had a good night there on Tuesday trying to keep the momentum going here at uh, 10 o'clock with the radio debate. We'll see how she does. But yesterday she tried to keep it going with the release of the Green Party platform. And this is interesting if you take a look at some of the stuff in there, including a promise for basic income, a basic income program in BC. Have a listen to what she said yesterday. We need to build a more resilient society and social safety net that lifts people up and doesn't leave them behind. To help address income inequality, the BC Greens would implement a basic income targeted for youth aging out of care. Providing a basic income for youth aging out of care would give them the basic economic security they need to be able to live healthy and fulfilling lives. Okay, Sonia, first to know the Green Party leader there speaking yesterday. Let's talk about all this now with my guest, Adam Olson. He is the BC Green Party candidate seeking re-election in Saanich North and the Islands. Adam, thanks for taking the time. Thanks a lot for having me, and it's a, nice to be kicking off the day with, uh, with you this morning, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Let's talk first of all about that TV debate the other night. I think universally, uh, a lot of people saying first to know had a, had a good night. What were your thoughts there on that TV debate, and do you think it'll make a difference in this election? I certainly think it will. I mean, I think one of the challenges that Sonia had, of course, being six and a half days into her into her leadership uh, of the BC Greens before the election was called was yeah. uh, the challenge of not being in front of many British Columbians over the last uh, number of months. And so this was a really good introduction of Sonia, for sure. She did an incredible job. And I think that one of the things that uh, that I know about Sonia is that that's how she shows up to the table every day. I've had the honour of working alongside her for the last three and a half years, I've sat at, you know, some pretty important tables right next to her. And I can tell you, that's just consistently how she shows up. Okay. Do you think she was underestimated going into this campaign? A lot, not a lot of people knew who she was, kind of overshadowed by Andrew Weaver for all those years when he was the party leader. I, I think a lot of people did underestimate her ability here to connect with voters. I think I did, I'll admit. Uh, she's outperformed my expectations. But do you think people maybe, maybe underestimated her? I absolutely think uh, people underestimated her, and um, I'm not included in that, but, but I think that the, the public uh, certainly uh, needed an opportunity to get to know her and, and to know what she brings to the table. And I think, you know, one of the things that uh, we've worked on together and that I know is at the center of, of, of her work as a legislator is our communities and people, and uh, she really puts that well ahead of uh, our partisan interests and uh, the political interests. And, pu- and puts people and communities at the center of her work. And it's been consistent at every table that I've sat at. And it, it's showing up in our campaign platform. You know, as we're pulling this together, um, really uh, her approach and, and our collective approach over the last year uh, is really showing up in that campaign platform. Okay, okay. let's talk a little bit about that platform released yesterday. The guaranteed basic income for youth aging out of care. Can you explain how that would work? Yeah, so I mean, I think that what uh, what we know is that when you're uh, when youth are coming out of care, that they're going to need the support. Uh, they're going to need some support, and uh, we figured, and we've been having a conversation about a basic income, a universal basic income. Uh, it was in our platform in 2017. It's again in our platform in 2020. I think we've seen aspects of it rolled out with CERB, um, but one of the w- one of the places that we can certainly start. Uh, 
delivering the basic income is for youth aging out of care. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the demographics that certainly need it. I think that what we've learned from COVID-19 and the recovery is that what we need is to be careful as we're developing this program and that we start to uh, understand how best to deliver and package um, services and, and supports for British Columbians uh, who need it and certainly moving towards a universal basic income and doing it in a thoughtful and practical way is uh, a good start with youth. Okay, what would you say to people who say, like, if you give people a basic guaranteed income, which is a hot topic across Canada right now, that it would just serve as a disincentive to work? If you're just going to give people a handout, they're not going to want to work. There's been some analysis done on programs like the CERB program during COVID-19, for example, that found that a lot of that money that flowed from the federal government arguably went to people who didn't really need it, that they came from high-income families, maybe didn't even lose their jobs, but they're, they're still able to collect a lot of money. What, what would you say to that? Well, I, I think that uh, I think that while we've learned from CERB, and I think that it's also important to recognize that the conditions that CERB was delivered in are very different than what we would do for a long-term, uh, you know, as we repackage social services and social supports. I think that we have to recognize the nuances there. And so we have to learn from CERB and recognize that those who are able to work, we have to provide the incentives to work rather than the, incent- the disincentives to work. So I think that that's probably where there needs to be more complexity in a program like CERB. We need to recognize that those who can work should be, and we should provide those incentives, but those who are unable to, uh, that we are providing the appropriate level of support well, for them. Well, where is the incentive to work in the Green Party plan that was rolled out yesterday? Because a p- another part of this platform that you released would reduce the clawbacks on money people can make if they're on income assistance or welfare for for 12 months. So like you'd be able to work full time for a year and and still collect welfare? Really? Well, I think I think <laughs> I think as we're as we're rolling these plans out, they need to be we need to be taking a look at what the impacts of them are and we need to be able to evaluate them. Yeah. So in in terms of these specific aspects um, I think that it's important that we're constantly evaluating them as they're rolling out. And uh, we need to provide people the safety and security that are, is going to help them be able to establish lives. But we also need to provide, uh, as I said earlier, the incentives to have them working if they're able to. Okay, you've also in the platform here, you would remove uh, assets uh, as, a, as an income test for receiving income assistance. So in other words, if you uh, let's say you own a home uh, with a lot of equity in that home. You'd still be eligible for income assistance? Is that right? Um, that is one that I need to dig into a little bit further, to be honest with you, uh, Mike. Okay, well, it says your, yep. your own, your own yep. platform here says that you would eliminate the asset test uh, for people to receive income assistance. So, for example, a single person applying for regular income assistance uh, right now is limited to five thousand dollars in assets, so you would you would drop that. So presumably, even someone who owns a home would be able to get welfare well, under your under your plan. So so that's right. And I think that one of the things that we need to be looking at is that the home is it creates stability for people. And so if someone's got an asset, but they're also in transition between uh, jobs or they have lost a job, the last thing that we want for them is to be uh, uh, to 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 have a situation where they have to get rid of their home or sell their home in order to uh, in order to be able to get the support that they need over the short term. So I think that I think okay. that when you're when you're taking a look at that, you need to look at the fact that 
the home is where security and people and families and individuals is created. And so we have a, we have a housing first approach where we want to have uh, people creating homefulness. And uh, by, re- by, by removing this, what it does is it allows for us to people to transition okay. and, and not lose their home necessarily. Okay. The plan would be for the basic income plan would be for youth aging out of care. So these are our kids who are in government care. Um, as they get older, they would be eligible under your plan for basic income. Um, but you'd hopefully ex- you would want to expand that to other people later, right? So can you can you give make just briefly make the case for the guaranteed basic income that so many people are talking about across Canada? Controversial topic. Why do you think it's a good idea? Well, because I think that um, again, people need to be able to pr- uh, have the support that they need, and I think that when uh, and and the the basic income is a way for us to be able to take. Uh, a series of programs that are not necessarily connected right now, bring them together and repackage them and provide people a, the level of support that they need. We see a lot of people are falling behind. Uh, the, the, the supports are not keeping pace with inflation or keeping pace with uh, the cost of living. And so, uh, you know, just continuing to prop up the system that we have had over the last um, uh, over the last, you know, 50 or 60 sure. years in this in this province, isn't necessarily the approach that we need in in the in 2020. And so, our plan would be to take a look at the the package of assistance that people have, and uh, and make sure that it's suitable for uh, the decades to come, rather than the, the the system that we've had for the decades past. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks a lot for having me. Welcome back to the show. It's a big day here in the BC election campaign. It is radio debate day right here on CKNW. The debate is at 10 a.m. Our own Simi Sarah is the moderator. Full coverage and analysis for you. we got a preview of the debate coming up for you. Then we'll have analysis, highlights, reaction for you later. Keep it locked here all morning with me. Adam Olson was my guest from the BC Green Party. They rolled out a plan for a universal basic income yesterday. Let's go to Karen on the open line in the Nanaimo. Hiya, Karen. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Good. So I have two brothers who are actually, they've aged out of the system. So when they were youth, due to various uh, disabilities, they were getting lots of support. And then now as adults, they get almost no support. They get a disability income assistance, and that's it. There's no help for them as they transition. And I think a basic income assistance is a game changer for people like that. Yeah, thank you for that. No, for sure, people who are aging out of government care are in a really, really tough spot. And a lot of them are vulnerable people, uh, quite often Indigenous young people who have been in government care or foster care. Uh, they hit age 18, and then they're on their own. So I can understand how you'd want to increase supports for them. I don't think that's a bad idea at all. Expanding a universal income to just about everybody, though, uh, that's something else, whether the Green Party wants to go there. Some of their income assistance plans they rolled out yesterday were also just like off the chart. Wow, really? You're going to let people work full time and still collect welfare? What's that about? And uh, Adam Olson didn't seem to know part of his own platform there when I was speaking to him. Sean and Coquitlam, hi. I'm a fiscal conservative, and uh, I always you know, go on the side of small government generally. But um, in this case, I like the policy suggestion. I've, I've worked with Covenant House, and I've seen firsthand how youth aging out of the system are just so disadvantaged, often yes. no family support, lacking the skills and education, and they're just uh, basically left to fend for themselves. I think that's really unjust. And right. uh, 
I think that's a great targeted uh, application of this, but I wouldn't want to see it expand globally, but I think it's a great targeted approach, and I think that's a great way to fight inequality. Sean, thanks a lot for the call. I think you really sort of cut the diamond there and really got to the heart of it. Like, if you've got kids who have been in government care, and again, like, these are often kids who come from, uh, you know, troubled homes, broken homes, uh, suffered abuse, neglect. Uh, they're in government care. They're foster kids. And then quite often they're just let loose and just with, with no help at all. And I agree. I think they do need more help. I guess my questions are how far do you expand that to other people that, you know, you know like saying, saying getting rid of the, in, of the asset test. Like right now, a single person can qualify for welfare in British Columbia unless they've got more than $5,000 in assets. So if you've got a home, let's say you got a home that's got hundreds of thousands of dollars in uh, equity, uh, you would not qualify for income assistance. And the Green Party is suggesting yesterday that they would eliminate that asset test, which, like I said, Adam Olson there didn't seem to know that that was in his platform. Mac in Ocean Park. Hi. Hey, how you doing? Good. Um, yeah, just to keep it brief, uh, I didn't, unfortunately, I wasn't able to see the debate. Um, but uh, my point was, uh, just see what's worked in the past. I think we have to look from past experiences with other governments to see, um, how this has worked or, or not worked. And I think one of those great examples you, you were saying there is the abuse, potential abuse that can take place, like not having the asset test. That's not right. And even likewise with Serb and Sue, that's taken place in the last little while. I know of quite a few cases where people were, you know, offered their jobs back and they thought, well, it's better to just sit here on, in part of my ignorance, Sue's or, or Serb, I can't remember which one it is. I, I've had, had to use either, luckily, in my industry. But yeah. uh, uh, the, the abuse is, is the problem, right? I mean, if somebody legitimately absolutely needs it, then sure, absolutely we should be looking at this. But well, there's, lo- there's lots of evidence. Thank you for the call. There's lots of evidence that there are people who had received the CERB that arguably didn't need it. So, for example, one study found that there were nearly a million, a million young people in Canada age 15 to 24 who collected the $2,000 a month CERB even though they were still living with their parents at home and the household income was over $100,000. So you got a kid living at home, you've got a healthy income, parents are still working, so did that kid get the CERB? I mean, you could make an argument that that's, that was overspending and, and wasteful. Let's uh, squeeze in one more call here. Michael on the North Shore, you got to go fast, Michael. Oh, hi, thanks for having me, Mike. Great show. Um, exactly, they haven't dis- put a line in the sand of who qualifies and who doesn't qualify. And it sounds like they're trying to make everybody lazy, not work to collect some money, which is not how we all grew up. So this is a sad way of spending hard-earned taxpayers' money. Okay, thank you very much for the call. Appreciate everyone who called in there. We didn't get to all of them. All right, welcome back to the show. We all know public school teachers in British Columbia belong to a union, the BC Teachers Federation, very powerful union. We know school support workers, too, like janitors and secretaries and bus drivers. They belong to a union, CUPE, Canadian Union of uh, Public Employees. That's another powerful union. What about school principals and vice principals, though? Currently, they do not belong to a union, but could that change? My guest is Darren Daniluk. He is the president of the BC Principals and Vice Principals Association. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Darren, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Michael. Pleased to be here. Okay, this is very interesting. Right now, BC Principals and Vice Principals, I guess they're considered management. Is that right? Is that why they're not in a union? We're considered excluded staff, correct. 
Right, right. Okay, so tell me about the uh, the, the the principles and vice principles in BC that are uh, I've applied for to certify as a union. What's going on there? Uh, the principles of the Southeast Kootenai School District. Uh, again, the, the landscape of British Columbia, there are 60 independent and autonomous school boards, boards of education, and right. we acknowledge that and, and respect that structure. And they, the working relationship with every one of our members, our 2,600 members, is with their local boards of education. And in respect to SD5, uh, the circumstances there are such that the members in that local or that chapter have felt that there is no other opportunity for the Northern Avenue to uh, to achieve some of the objectives that they have other than to take this pathway of applying for certification. Wow. wow. Okay, so school district number five, like you said, the Southeast Kootenai, so that rep, that's includes like Cranbrook area, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Right, okay. Um, how does this work? How do they apply to become a union? <laughs> uh, well, the application goes to the Labor Relations Board uh, for certification, and the Labor Relations Board will rule on uh, whether or not that can happen. Uh, so that is the fundamental question, and right now we are waiting on a ruling from the uh, Labor Relations Board on that matter. Okay. Um, I know that you used to be a principal at mm-hmm. uh, David Thompson Secondary, which I believe is in Invermere, B.C. Is that right? Uh, that's where the central office is, correct, yeah. It's oh, Invermere, okay. it, Golden, and Kimberley. Is that, that's, is that in school district number five or no? No, we're a neighboring district. We're number Neighbor, six. Okay, okay. What about you guys in, in number six? Like, are there, other, are there other principals and vice principals in other school districts thinking of unionizing too? Well, to be quite frank, no. The, uh, as a okay. provincial association, the BC Principals and Vice Principals Association, first and foremost, unionization is not the objective that we are seeking. And in fact, as a provincial body, uh, we could not unionize in the same way you spoke at the opening about the QP organization and the BCTF. And uh, for the BC Principals and Vice Principals Association, that's not an objective, nor is it even a, a possible outcome. Our 2,600 members are employees of their local boards of education. And right. if, in fact, uh, certification is possible, it would be on a local basis, a local level. So you could uh, have... You could have a whole bunch of different individual principals and uh, unionized in individual school districts, possibly. Well, potentially, depending on yeah. the ruling of oh. the LRB, that, that is a possibility. But it, uh, it must be said, again, that's not the objective of our provincial association. And, and right. quite frankly, the majority of our members uh, aren't interested in a unionized design. We have a singular okay. objective, a one goal, and that is to achieve some contract provisions that would reflect the skills, the responsibilities, and the needs of our principals and vice principals at a provincial table, a negotiation right. framework that would allow us to achieve some equity uh, provincially, because as it is right now, there's kind of a patchwork of, of uh, contract provisions across the province. Uh, 70, I want to say 70%, uh, sorry, no, 60% of our members are female. And in terms of maternity leave, the language that exists in these, uh, you know, the great variation of contracts is kind of hit and miss. Um, some contracts are silent on it, leaning entirely on the, on the uh, provisions uh, by law for maternity, while others do speak to some, some provisions that would make it, uh, you know, at least equal to what teachers are receiving. But the point is that they're inequitable across the province. And that is sort of the fundamental opportunity we're seeking here is the chance to, on a provincial basis, discuss and negotiate some particular terms that we believe are fundamental and should be in okay. all principal and vice principal's contracts, not uh, left to sort of um, 
well, the local context right. and the the skills of the negotiation team in that local to achieve. Okay, that's very interesting. My guest is Darren Daniluk. He is the president of the BC Principals and Vice Principals Association. How much does uh, an average principal make in salary in BC? Oh, that's a that's a good question, Michael. And I'm sorry, I don't know that I could tell you the average. Uh, well, what be kind of a ballpark? For a principal, it's going to yeah. depend on the size of the school. I'm, I'm going to pull this one out of my hat. Maybe in you know between 115 and 120. Okay. Do you guys do some do some principals feel that they're underpaid? I think some people feel that the the regional grid. There is a regional grid that was produced uh, yeah, collaboratively, actually, with all of the education partners in the last um, several years, and in very many districts. Uh, that regional grid for salary com- and compensation is applied and used fairly, and I think I would I would be fair to say most of our members are very satisfied. Uh, there right. are the odd places where that's not the case, and conversation or, or negotiation around salary and compensation is again a local issue with the boards of education. Right. That isn't something that uh, at this point is our interest for a provincial table. Okay, you mentioned that the policy at your association for representing all the principals and vice principals in British Columbia is, is not to go for a, un, a provincial union, but you do support those principals and vice principals in that school district number five there in the Kootenays near Cranbrook. You do support their efforts to form a union there. Is that right? Well, we're supporting their efforts to achieve some uh, contract uh, securities that they've been seeking yeah. for some time and to, to manage a relationship that is been difficult. So uh, this is the pathway they've selected to uh, achieve that, and we are supporting them in that endeavor. But I'll repeat again, as a provincial body, that's not the objective to unionize, nor is it even a possibility as a provincial body. Has Has this ever happened before? Have any principals or vice principals in any school district before gone to the labor board and tried to get a union certification? The conversation around uh, the contract inequities and, and you know, achieving a greater uh, degree of security provincially has been going on for many years. Uh, yeah. But this actual uh, effort to go to the Labour Board and you know, test the question, no, to my knowledge, that's not been done okay. before. Okay, we're following that closely. COVID-19, of course, has been a challenge in the school mm-hmm. system. What has that been like for principals and vice principals in B.C.? It's been very challenging, but I think it's fair to say that our members have demonstrated that, um, you know, we're committed to the, the safe and healthy operation of D.C. schools and, and committed to the uh, public confidence in our system. And there's no desire to, to rock that. Uh, I think we've clearly demonstrated that over the months since March. Uh, however, saying that, uh, we still hope that we have a, a space for a provincial discussion to address some of the inequities that we see exist across the province. Okay, we can follow it very closely. Thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it today. My pleasure, Michael. Yeah, okay. If you had gone out into the woods in the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia a couple of weeks back, that might have been the sound that you heard. Howling wolves. That's enough to send a shiver up your spine for sure. But check this out. This is an incredible story here. The Canadian military, as part of a propaganda training exercise, 
The whole thing was fake. They sent out a fake warning to residents that wild wolves had been released into the area. Even had a loudspeaker going on with wolf sounds. You got to be kidding me. This is incredible. The story by Dave Puglazi from the Ottawa Citizen. He is the best military writer in Canada. He joins me now. Dave, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Okay, this is an incredible story. So how did this whole thing start? I mean, this is kind of what, training the military and how to do propaganda? This is crazy. Well, the military does have, uh, yeah, propaganda training. Uh, they've formed uh, uh, new units to uh, to do this. They've, uh, uh, you know, they're going full bore into this. So what happened uh, uh, recently where uh, people in the uh, Annapolis Valley uh, woke up to find uh, these pamphlets in their, in their uh, mailboxes um, saying wolves were in the area, um, if, you know, stay inside or don't approach these wolves, that type of thing. Um and if you have any problems, call the uh, government of Nova Scotia, which people started doing. Government of Nova Scotia looks at this and goes, "This is fake. We don't we don't know what happened, but we're not behind this. There are no wolves." So they did a social media campaign where they're saying, "Hey, this is fake. We don't know who's behind this, but don't believe it." So once they went public with that, the military came forward and said, well, uh, we're behind it. Oh, um, my. So now there's an investigation to find out what happened. Um, you know, I've reported that uh, it was uh, information operation, psychological warfare training that, uh, you know, went off the rails. So we'll, we'll see why or how or, you know, what, what, you know, what was behind this. So. Okay, what about the loudspeaker with the wolf sounds? What was that about? Yeah, well, the Canadian Forces, um, uh, the D&D spokesman said he doesn't know what it's about, and that's what the investigation is going to uh, look into. And uh, I mean, the interesting thing is, while it's a while it's an amusing story, yeah. uh, there's some real. Um, concerns here because i mean the day before i did a story about how the defense department has uh, spent a million dollars of taxpayers money to uh, teach uh, public affairs officers uh, behavior modification skills so this is um, how to how to um, change the attitudes of whether it's Canadians or whether it's journalists, that type of thing. And the training is based um, on the, the company, the parent company of Cambridge Analytica. Oh. So, uh, you know, and then earlier this year... That was, had, like, that was the company that was mixed up in some of the, uh, the Facebook propaganda that was going that's on. That's right. I mean, yeah. Cambridge Analytica turned, uh, you know, did data mining and, uh, and turned over all this Facebook uh, information at Donald Trump's campaign right, right. in 2016. Well, and then earlier this year, I had a story about, um, uh, you know, for the COVID response in Ontario, um, the military created this, um, it's called PIT, it's like an intelligence targeting unit, and they were scanning through the public's uh, social media accounts um, you know they're getting ready for the uh, to deploy military folks into the um, care long-term care homes for COVID, but they decided that they would go through uh, people's uh, social media accounts and uh, scan them, and then they determined they took uh, you know negative comments about Doug Ford's government. Um, a lot of people, I guess, were angry, and uh, they turned all that over to Doug Ford's government. 
Weird. Okay. Speaking of Dave Puglesi, military reporter with the Ottawa Citizen. So, Dave, let me ask you a little bit more about this this whole wolf propaganda mm-hmm. exercise. I mean, I, I find this extraordinary. So the military sends these fake letters out warning people that wild wolves have been released into the area. They've got a loudspeaker with wolf sounds going on, I guess. And what is the what is the purpose or, or the rationale behind this? It's like they're trying to see if propaganda can be effective or if it can change people's behavior is that what they're trying to find well, out they say that it was a mistake that that the pamphlets got out into the public domain and i guess into people's mailboxes but yeah. you know i was talking to one uh, propaganda specialist from the u.s and and she was pointing out that you know uh, yeah so propaganda information warfare is about changing people's attitudes so whether you um, scare them to, into doing something or scare them into preventing doing something. Um, and this has been, you know, this has been done in Iraq and Afghanistan, right. uh, one of these operations, for instance. Yeah, but doing it here at home against our own people? What's well, that and, that's, and, the, and that is the problem, right? So, yeah. you know, the, the reporting I've done on this information warfare, you know, the last four incidents that I've reported on have all been aimed at Canadians. So, you know, that's what we're trying to find out. Why is this continuing? Is there any kind of ethical question about doing this type of thing, especially domestically? I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you're involved in some theater of war and fighting terrorists or something in some foreign country hundreds and thousands of miles away, maybe that's something different. But I don't know, doing something like this domestically on our own soil to our own citizens at home, what's the ethics of that? Well, so the military says that uh, they do this overseas, as you mentioned, in counterterrorism. And they also claim that their rules prevent this from being done domestically uh, unless we have been invaded by a foreign power. And so we haven't been invaded by a foreign power, obviously. Um, You know, so the scanning of people's um, uh, social media accounts, they say, well, that's all open that's all open source material. And my response when I did the interview on that is, okay, fine, but why are you turning over comments to Doug Ford's government? Yeah. Strange stuff. Dave, great scoop. I love it. The story's going crazy and viral online. Uh, give me a follow on Twitter, everyone, and I've posted the link there to it. Uh, another great, great uh, job for you, Dave. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike.